Welcome back to PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Greg Bruno. Today, the president confirmed it that the summit will be held in Singapore. The president tweeted just a short time ago. The news on the Korean peninsula is being described as a diplomatic breakthrough, and it is for North Korea. It has been the goal of North Korea for decades now to have a high-profile one-on-one summit meeting with the President of the United the States. White House now and the latest on that high-stakes nuclear summit with North Korea. President's national security team out in force laying the groundwork and raising expectations. One of the most anticipated summits in decades is scheduled to take place in Singapore on June 12th. That's when U.S. President Donald Trump has said he will meet his North Korean counterpart, Kim Jong-un, to discuss the North's nuclear program. No sitting U.S. president has ever had a face-to-face conversation with a North Korean leader. Like so much of Trump's presidency, his approach to diplomacy with North Korea has been unconventional, to say the least. Details of the meeting remain scarce, and its objectives are shrouded in mystery. It's not even certain the meeting will take place. Kim has hinted he'd cancel if the U.S. insisted on unilateral nuclear abandonment. And yet, there's little doubt that a degree of optimism has returned to the Korean peninsula. Late last year, war seemed inevitable. Today, a path to peace looks possible. But as my guest today argues, that possibility must not distract from the hard truth. The road ahead will be treacherous. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, and author of the book A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order, says that while Trump may deserve credit for getting a summit on the agenda, a verifiably nuclear-free Korean peninsula remains a distant goal. Hello. Hi, Richard. Yes. Hi, it's Greg Bruno at Project Syndicate. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Greg. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Let's get right to it. Um, it's been quite an amazing turn of events on the Korean Peninsula in recent months. It wasn't that long ago that U.S. President Donald Trump called diplomacy with North Korea a waste of time. And experts, including yourself, were predicting war was possible, even likely. Now we're talking about summits between two leaders. How on earth did we get to this point? The honest answer is we're not quite sure, and that's an important understanding, and let me explain why. If we got here because of the threats the United States made to North Korea, if we got here because of the economic pressure uh, from the sanctions, then it suggests that continued pressure makes it highly likely that the summit could have the sort of outcome the administration is suggesting at once, which is dramatic changes in the capabilities and threats that North Korea poses to the peninsula and to to the world. If, however, and it's a big if, we got to where we are less because of pressure than because North Korea essentially satisfied itself that it had done sufficient testing of its nuclear weapons and its ballistic missiles, and in addition that its nuclear test site had reached a point where it could no longer be used again, then it may suggest simply that North Korea had arrived at a plateau, that it thought a summit might make sense in this context, and perhaps it could trade some of what it had achieved or some other things in exchange for some of the things it wanted, namely, say, economic relief or or diplomatic recognition. So we simply don't know exactly why it is we got where we were, but depending upon your analysis and what turns out to be right, and it could be one or the other or some combination of the the two, it suggests very different uh, paths going forward. Well, it's interesting that we might not necessarily know how we got here, 
But even after the summit uh, takes place, we might not know where we're going. And that gets to kind of the question of trust. I mean, how can either Kim or Trump trust the other? I mean, Trump has has made a specialty out of slash and burn diplomacy. And I'm certain North Korea views the recent withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal in much the same way the Iranians do as a broken promise. So there's certainly a trust deficit here. Absolutely. And if this depends upon trust, then it's There's no chance it would work. North Korea has a history of reneging on agreements. The fact, as you suggest, that the United States just walked away from the Iran nuclear deal is hardly a a trust uh, builder. Uh, One thing is obviously uh, to be slightly more modest rather than uh, put everything uh, in play. A second would to be to make certain things reciprocal and step by step. So you have confidence building every step of the way. So we'll take this step, but only if you take this other step uh, simultaneously. There'd be degrees of monitoring and and, and verification uh, would would have to be would have to be built in. So you you try to structure this, understanding that there there isn't a lot of trust. Indeed. Trust is less a prerequisite than hopefully is something you build if this were to be successful. But, you know, but in, in the old cliche, with, and it's not a cliche, it's actually true from Ronald Reagan, uh, trust but verify. Here I'd say in some ways don't trust, but verify and structure this uh, in a very careful way. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the most interesting things in the last few months is that it seems like uh, the Kim regime is acting incredibly differently than uh, his his father, his grandfather. Has any of Kim's actions surprised you in the last few months? To be honest, yes. The mere fact that we're having this conversation is not something I necessarily uh, would have predicted. In fact, uh, did not. Uh, The fact that he, though, he released the the three hostages or prisoners, that doesn't uh, surprise me. The fact that they're have announced the intended dismantling of a nuclear site that had become dysfunctional. That doesn't surprise me. There's clearly a charm offensive uh, going on here. And again, that's consistent. But but the mere fact that we're, we've reached a point where a summit is a real possibility, June 12th, or if not June 12th, some other point that the United States and North Korea have had several high-level direct contacts. Secretary of State Pompeo has now had two visits to, uh, to, to North Korea. Uh, that you've had the north-south intensification of diplomacy. Kim Jong-un has visited Beijing. Uh, The the fact that things have gotten this far without knowing whether they go farther or if so, by how much, that that alone is something of a surprise given where we were six months ago when we were debating the percentage chances of there being a war. Now to that new threat from North Korea, saying they could cancel the summit with President Trump after the U.S. and South Korea conducted joint military drills. With the North Korean state media reporting, the North is threatening to back out of Kim Jong-un's historic face-to-face with President Trump next month, blaming joint U.S.-South Korea air combat drills currently underway. We haven't seen anything. We haven't heard anything. Uh, We will see what happens. Now, Kim's government is suggesting that it might cancel the meeting following statements that Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, made back in April, suggesting that North Korea should follow Libya's lead and give up its nuclear program voluntarily. We all know what happened to Libya's leader, and I assume Kim sees the parallel too. Well, there's two things. One is a principal rationale for why North Korea wants nuclear weapons is because of the experience of Libya, of Iraq, and above all, Ukraine. 
And what recent history suggests is that giving up nuclear weapons can be dangerous to your political health. And the North Koreans have, for obvious reasons, uh, taking note. I then think the, the public statements by this administration and by the new national security advisor, John Bolton in particular, have created a, a context which the North Koreans are, are understandably worried about being trapped. The fact that you could have a summit and the United States then walks away because North Korea didn't give up every nuclear item it had in the first hour and then blames the failure of the summit on North Korea, that is not a scenario that North Korea obviously wants to, to participate in. So I actually think the administration and John Bolton in particular have mishandled the, the run-up to the, the possible uh, summit by being so public and by being so demanding about what North Korea must do. It looks more like they're asking North Korea to capitulate rather than negotiate. Mm. And no government is going to do that. Right, right. But of course, that statement was made two weeks ago by John Bolton. Well, again, you had the, the statement. Who knows how long it took the North Koreans to digest it. Uh, they've read what's going on in the press, the high expectations uh, or the administration has put out. Again, the administration seems to be defining the, the word success in terms of total North Korean denuclearization. Mm. Well, my own reading of the situation is North Korea is unlikely to want to go down that path, certainly anytime soon, and certainly without receiving enormous uh, rewards in, in exchange for it. So you know, all of this against the backdrop, as you mentioned before, of the American walking away from the Iran nuclear deal, most recently also this you know, plans for uh, a military exercise, it's quite possible that the North Koreans are beginning to reconsider what it is they have helped set in motion. Right, and as you say, I mean, certainly mixed, mixed messages, mixed signals from the Trump administration. If the goal is actually to get a sit-down in place, you know, curb your tongue and, and holster your arms for a couple more weeks. Well, there's nothing about this which is, the, which is consistent with what all of us have learned from our own experience or you would have studied in graduate school. You think of high-level summits as being the culmination of a process, not the start of a process, following care, you know, months, if not years, of careful preparation. And the idea that, again, you're going to bring these two leaders together with a minimum of preparation and that somehow they're going to resolve this, what, in the course of a day or two? Uh, there's no history. There's no precedent for that sort of a situation. And again, the, the public comments of, the, of administration officials suggest a, a one-sidedness and a degree of pressure on, on North Korea. And my, my guess is North Korea would, would prefer to have a scenario where a summit was postponed Mm. rather than have a scenario where a summit happened and they were the ones who were blamed by the United States and others for being responsible for, for its failure. Right, right. Well, let's assume for a moment that, that a summit does happen, either on schedule or slightly delayed. What, what would we expect from, from such a summit? What would it look like? And what would both Trump and Kim consider success? Well, it's, it's a great question. Uh, and I've been, I've been thinking an awful lot about it. I think it's too much to, to define success that you have the resolution of everything on the peninsula, uh, including you know, denuclearization, demissilization, the conventional military issues, and the, the like. What I would hope is you would lock in the North Korean freeze on testing of nuclear warheads and, uh, and ballistic missiles. I would, you know, I would like, I would expect to, in, in exchange for that, 
there might be some formalization of the, the peace or the situation of non-war, because there hasn't been anything more than an armistice since the end of the Korean War in the early uh, 1950s. I don't know if there would have to be any adjustment to our military exercises. I would only favor that probably in exchange for some kind of a adjustment to the non-nuclear threat that North Korea poses to, to South Korea and to the American troops that are stationed there. But what I'm suggesting is that while there may be statements about long-term denuclearization and long-term demilitarization and, and so forth, that you would have some version of a in, uh, of an interim or partial agreement. And that to me is probably the most that could be expected, that you place this in the near term on some type of more stable plateau and you, you lay out a path both for the implementation of that and for follow-on agreements, for follow-on uh, steps. I think that's probably uh, the most that could be expected. Mm. And that would be, by the way, that would be an extraordinary achievement. Mm. And, and what about if we could broaden this out a bit, uh, you know, what do the regional actors uh, see as success? Chinese President Xi Jinping has held, I think, two summits of his own with Kim uh, and, and the historic uh, summit with South Korea. And, of course, Japan has interests. Um, help us kind of unpack all of that for, for regional implications. What the Chinese would prepare, would, would, would favor seeing is uh, the avoidance of a war and of the avoidance of a situation when North Korea has a sufficiently large nuclear inventory that other countries in the region, including Japan, would be tempted one day to follow suit. China also wants to avoid a situation where there's so much economic pressure on North Korea that it, that it unravels and that you ultimately have a united peninsula with Seoul as its capital somehow associated with the, the United States. So China essentially wants a version of the status quo where it has a better relationship with, with North Korea, because right now the relationship is, is quite estranged, and where the Korean Peninsula remains divided, but not in a way that would bring in or make a war likely or make further proliferation in the, in the region likely. I think for South Korea, it's a different calculus. What they would like to see is a much more normal relationship with the North. They'd like to face less of a, a military threat from North Korean artillery and special forces, uh, I don't think it's a high priority for most South Koreans that the peninsula be reunified. This is not like Germany uh, in 1989. But I think they want a much more just normal, peaceful in, uh, Korean peninsula where they have economic ties and regular political ties and social and, and cultural and family exchanges uh, and the like. And I think Japan is most worried about the uh, medium-range uh, missile threat that North Korea uh, poses, its nuclear weapons. And, you know, at times North Japan gets a little bit left out of this conversation, but they're very much in range of, of North Korean capabilities. And what they would like to see, again, is uh, are several aspects of the North Korean uh, military uh, arsenal, one way or another, curtailed mm. or limited. Yeah, in the build-up to the summit, much of the talk has been about the cards that Trump holds and the cards that the United States holds in pushing a denuclearized North Korea. I was struck by a New York Times piece just a couple of days ago um, that looked at kind of some of the premature loosening of economic restrictions right on the border with North Korea in, in northern China. 
And, uh, you know, the piece essentially made the point that it's not the U.S., it's China that holds the cards. And we have to remember that, that Kim visited with, with Xi Jinping um, before the summits um, were even discussed. How, how important is China's role in this? And have they kind of played the dark horse, I suppose, in, in moving us to this, this position? Well, China China's pivotal to this because probably 80 to 90 percent of North Korea's trade goes in and out over Chinese territory. And China's been a major source of economic subsidies to, to, to North Korea. So if, there, if there's any country in a position to have influence with Pyongyang, with North Korea, it is obviously China. But that said, China is, is, does not have a totally free hand here. It doesn't want to put so much pressure on North Korea that it brings it down. North Korea uh, knows this, so that limits the degree to which China is willing to tighten the screws on sanctions. There's also you know, people and businesses in China that don't want to go along with sanctions, and as always we've seen in history, there's ways to end run or work around sanctions, so there, there, there's elements of that. Inside the Chinese government, I expect there are certain people or indiv- certain individuals or, or organizations that have certain ties to North Korea, you know, fellow communist countries. So there's, there's something there. So China's, China's torn here. So it wants to use its influence to, bring, uh, to make the peninsula more peaceful, uh, but it doesn't want to put so much pressure on North Korea that that ultimately destabilizes the country. Now, there was a line during the Cold War. Uh, that one Frenchman said about Germany, that he liked Germany so much he was glad there were two of them. And my, <laughs> and my guess is that's how many in China feel about Korea, that they, uh, they like Koreans so much that they're glad there are two of them. They would like the peninsula to remain divided. They would just like it to be not moving in the direction of war, and they don't want it to move in the direction of further proliferation. Mm-hmm. Back in March, you, you essentially predicted that Trump was headed for war on three, uh, on three fronts, on the domestic front with the Mueller investigation, on trade with China, and uh, on the foreign front with Iran and North Korea. So now that we're having this conversation with, uh, about a potential or possible thaw in relations with North Korea, and Trump has seemingly rolled back uh, some of his, uh, his angry vitriol uh, towards China related to trade uh, and, and offering to even salvage some Chinese jobs, is it time to reassess that very dire prediction? <laughs> uh, the short answer is no. Uh, we still don't know what's going to happen first with Mr. Mueller, whether the president might fire him or he's just trying to delegitimize whatever it is Mr. Mueller may come forward with. So it's way too soon to declare peace on on that front. With China, if you look at the content of what the American trade delegation led by the U.S. trade representative and by the secretary of the Treasury, what they brought to China about 10 days ago, that was about as one-sided an offer as I've ever seen, and that was designed to be rejected by the Chinese, and in that they succeeded. Uh, now, you know, these negotiations continue, but unless the administration does a major climb down from what it is suggesting to, to, to China, then we will have significant elements of a, of a trade war. And in the case of North Korea, whether you have a summit or not, I don't think we're out of the woods by any means. Obviously, if we don't have a summit, we're back to where we were six months ago, and there'll be tremendous disappointment and finger pointing and the rest. But imagine you do have a summit. The United States comes in with uh, ambitious demands. North Korea essentially tells us to take a hike, that it's it's not going to capitulate as they see it. They're not going to negotiate away this nuclear capability. They have 
laboriously built up over the decades, then I think a lot of people will, say, will be saying, well, we tried diplomacy. That didn't succeed. So now we have to tighten the screws economically. And if that doesn't work, then we have to once again contemplate the use of military force. So I guess, again, I'd love to be proven wrong here. But I just think it's premature to assume that we're somehow out of the woods on any of these fronts. Mm-hmm. So way too premature to um, uh, approve Trump's uh, request that he be considered for a Nobel. Is that? <laughs> I would not put the champagne on ice just yet. <laughs> um, I want to end with one very big kind of broad question based on a piece that, that you wrote recently for Project Syndicate, which drew lots and lots of attention, essentially putting the uh, nail in the coffin of the liberal order. I wonder if this this moment in history, this moment in time, the fact that we're having a conversation about North Korea and all of these actors, in particular the United States and China, discussing a possible solution to one of history's greatest, most intractable problems, does it present an opportunity to rewrite a, a framework or present a new blueprint for what the international liberal order looks like? Are we at a, a pivotal moment in history? Um, or does, again, your prediction uh, still stand? Well, again, even if the United States and China can join in some transactions to deal with specific problems, that's not, that's not the same as upholding a, a regional or, or world order. I think the two, co- the two governments are very far apart. First of all, there's nothing in common in terms of liberalness, in terms of uh, how they believe societies ought to be organized or in what they're trying to promote around the uh, world. But I don't see significant overlaps necessarily in U.S. and Chinese views uh, in, say, how to, how to regulate cyberspace. We'll see if there's some overlap on trade. We'll see if there's overlap on North Korea. We'll see if there's any overlap on keeping peace in the region, dealing with Taiwan or the South China Sea. There, uh, so there may be a chance for, for American and Chinese cooperation on the degree of order. Indeed, my recent book argued for what it should be. And I think that unless the United States and China find ways to cooperate on regional and global issues, there'll be far less order for everybody and everyone will, will pay a price. But I don't think we're, we're there. I don't think we're close to being there. And that, to me, uh, that's the real question. This mm. will be a very different century, mm-hmm. depending upon uh, how, the, how these two countries uh, are able to, to narrow their, the differences between their worldviews. That remains to be done, however. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when the realists in the International uh, Foreign Relations School thought that conflict between the United, the United States and China was an inevitability. That seems a little bit uh, less likely today. Look, I don't, I, don't think any, I don't think anything's an inevitability. You know, I've worked for four presidents, and what that experience shows to me is that people and what's in their heads, the ideas they bring into these jobs are what matter. So there's nothing inevitable about U.S.-Chinese conflict. There's nothing inevitable about U.S.-Chinese cooperation. Uh, the degree to which these two, or how these two countries ultimately come to act towards one another Will, will be the result of the decisions made by various Chinese and American officials. But none of that is baked into the cake as yet. But I think, though, once the, the warning here, though, is we shouldn't assume that it's going to work out okay. Hmm. There's very little about history that just works out. Uh, it takes conscious effort. 
uh, it takes statesmanship. It takes uh, leaders who are prepared to make some tough decisions. And, and you know, we're just going to, it's, again, it's, it's way too soon. There's not nearly enough evidence to make, to make any judgment about whether that is likely. And that seems even more so today with um, uh, the leaders that we've been talking about today. Indeed it does. Um, Well, Richard, that was a fascinating overview of the situation in North Korea, and I thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Richard Haas, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you like what you hear, why not subscribe to our newest editorial offering, On Point, available at www.project-syndicate.org. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.